Following a transfer. From atop the lowest state theater building. Tales of intrigue, adventure, and the mysterious occult that will stir your imagination and make your very blood run cold. This is Dark Adventure Radio Theater with your host, Erskine Blackwell. Today's episode, H.P. Lovecraft's The Dreams in the Witch House. A brilliant college student rents a room in an old house with a witch-haunted past. His obscure studies consume his mind as strange nighttime noises drive him to despair and terrifying nightmares become waking visions. Is he going mad? Or have his dreams somehow crossed over into reality? My friends, radio broadcast is thirsty work. When my spirits sag and my voice needs a boost, I always reach for a refreshing bottle of bubble pep. It's the nerve quencher. A bracing lithiated tonic, 12 ounces of bubble pep lifts you up without filling you up. People everywhere enjoy its fizzy flavor, so serve bubbled pep to your guests. Keep a case on hand. They'll thank you for it. Drink bubble pep, it'll quench your nerves. Drink bubble pep, what a good host serves. That's bubble pep, let us pour you some. The L is for lithium, yum yum. And now... Dark Adventure Radio Theater presents H.P. Lovecraft's The Dreams in the Witch House. Thank you, Mrs. Krapsky. I hope your mother feels better soon. Thank you, Father. It was wonderful sermon. Bless you, Olga. You're very kind. I feared it might seem a little harsh. Harsh? Despair is mortal sin. To despair is to give over to the devil. But we must have compassion for those who suffer. I suppose. Go in peace, my child. I'll see you at the pancake breakfast. Oh, yes, father. Thank you. My apologies, my son. I thought everyone had gone. Father uh, Ivanishki, may I speak with you? <laughs> Certainly, my son. I don't believe I've seen you here before. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not actually Catholic, Father. My neighbor, Joe Mazurowitz, he suggested that I talk to you. Ah, yes. Joe's a good man. I'm sorry, what can I do for you, Mr... Uh, my name is Elwood, Frank Elwood. I, I, I don't know where else to turn, Father. I've seen things. Horrible things that I can't explain. Things that no one would believe. Well, I... I... I don't want you to think I'm crazy, Father, but I must tell someone. I must try to understand. There's been a death. I, I, I need help, Father. Here, sit down. 
You look pale. Thank you, Father. This is embarrassing. I, I, I'm not even religious. We are all God's children. Even if you don't believe in him, God believes in you. He has a funny way of showing it. His ways are often mysterious. Maybe this was a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. What was it you saw, Mr. Elwood? You said someone died? Do you believe in the supernatural, Father? Tell me what happened. It was my friend, Walter. Walter Gilman. I met him last year in the first week of school. We had rented rooms in the same house. Oh, oh hey, buddy. Lend a hand? This trunk is heavy, and these old stairs are pretty steep. Yeah, sure. I'm Gilman. Walter Gilman. Frank Elwood. Glad to meet you. Glad to meet you, too. You're the first person I've met in this neighborhood who didn't sound like he was fresh off the boat from Warsaw. <laughs> <laughs> You're telling me. Oh, holy moly, that's heavy. What's in here? Books, mostly. Are you a Miskatonic student? Yes, mathematics and folklore. I'll graduate next year. I'm at MU, too. I'm just starting my master's degree, engineering. Oh, that's a good program, although it lacks the beauty of higher mathematics. Hey, where are we taking this trunk? All the way to the top. <laughs> I have the attic room. Yikes! And I thought my room was bad. Look at the crazy angles of these walls and your ceiling. This whole house is an architectural disaster. <laughs> at least it's cheap, right? Are you mad? This house is a wonder. Don't you know where you are? What do you mean? This was Keziah Mason's house. Who's Keziah Mason? <laughs> You're not from around here, are you? No. <laughs> Rock Island, Illinois. Welcome to Arkham, my friend. This town is haunted by legends. Keziah Mason was one of the most notorious accused witches of the 17th century. She lived in this house until they dragged her to jail in 1692. Well, no wonder the rent's so low. It was in this very room that she performed her rituals. Rituals? Really? Well, that ceiling isn't falling down. It was designed that way. Keziah knew secrets about the angles of space and time that even Einstein would have trouble with. Oh, go on. You're pulling my leg. It's true. When I learned that the house was still standing, I knew I had to move in. Luckily for me, the superstitious Poles in this neighborhood are all afraid of the place. Well, I'm not sure I blame them. I mean, a real witch? You should take Wilmarth's New England folklore class. Witch was the word they used to label any woman with advanced knowledge. If her neighbors didn't understand her, they accused her of witchcraft. But Keziah was a scientist, whether she knew it or not. She had insight into mathematical depths, perhaps beyond the modern delvings of Planck, Heisenberg, and De Sitter. You don't say. Oh, it's all in the transcripts of her trial. She told the judge about lines and curves that could be made to point out directions leading through the walls of space to other places beyond. You mean, like, other dimensions? Exactly. In 1692, had she been a man, she might have been ranked with Newton. Instead, they threw her in jail. What happened to her? She escaped. Do you know how? No. Tell me. When they went to her cell, they found angles and curves drawn on the walls in a sticky red fluid. The door was still locked, but the jailer had gone mad, raving. Keziah vanished without a trace and was never seen again. At least, not in the flesh. And you think she somehow managed to... I don't know, but I intend to find out. This is where it all happened, right here. And now it's my turn.
So your friend was captivated by the history of this witch? Well, he was, yes, but it was more than that. It was the mathematics. I was in the graduate school and had taken more higher-level mathematics courses than he had, but Gilman's understanding went way beyond mine. He had some kind of special insight. God gives great abilities to some, and sometimes it is a painful burden. Maybe that was it. But he was more than just intelligent. It was his perception. He saw things no one else could see, and he heard things that no one else could hear. Oh, can't you people keep quiet? Who's there? I can hear you. Knock it off down there with that mumbo jumbo. It's after midnight. Save it for church. Superstitious imbecile. What is that? So he had no respect for his neighbor's prayers. Well, Father, I, I think it was more than the prayers that prevented him from sleeping. I went up early one morning to invite him to join me at the student union and found him standing on top of his desk examining the line where the wall met the ceiling. Gilman, what are you doing? You'll break your neck! Elwood, can you hear it? Hear what? That skittering, scurrying sound. It's coming from inside the walls. Come down, Gilman. There must be a space on the other side. See here along the ceiling how it slants downward away from the outside? Yes, but you need to... There's a loft space above. See that planking in the ceiling? There used to be a passage, but it's boarded over. I've been trying to pull it down all night, but those old pegs are wedged in tight. Walter, have you gone mad? Look what you've done all your books and papers. What a mess! And see how that wall slants inward? The outer wall runs at a different angle. What? I checked. The outer wall runs 12 degrees from true north, and there should be a window. On the outside of this wall, you can see where one has been boarded up, but not on this side. There's a space behind that wall and above this ceiling. And something's in there. It's rats. That's what you're hearing. You can, you can see where they've chewed through the baseboard right there. No, it's not just rats. I knew Keziah planned these angles deliberately, but I never stopped to consider the space between. The space between. Did you peel down all that wallpaper? I thought there might be traces of diagrams or symbols Keziah left behind on the original walls. Were there? No. 
The landlord will blow his stack when he sees this mess. <laughs> Dombrowski? He should worry more about that idiot on the first floor who prays all night long. How can anyone stand it? Old Joe Mazurowitz? Oh, he doesn't mean any harm. Mr. Gilman, I hear you awake, so I'm... My God, what is the wall? Mr. Dombrowski, we were just talking about you. I would like to get access to the loft space above this room. May I cut through the old passageway in the ceiling? The wallpaper you've torn all down! That moth-eaten paper was terrible. Practically fell off. It would all have to be replaced anyway. I did you a favor. This is no favor. You will not be get back damage deposit. Oh, really? What about the rat holes, Mr. Dombrowski? I'm sure the health inspector would be very interested to see how many there are and how fresh. It's old building. Exactly. An old building. I suppose I can overlook the rats if you can overlook the wallpaper. I knew I should not have rent this room. Listen, what about getting access to the loft space above? I'll provide my own tools. No, it's dangerous. It's more rats for you. I'll take that chance. I say no. Bad for good tenants. No changes. No more peeling of wallpaper. Mr. Dombrowski, this house is historical. It has special qualities. This house is... Mine! This house is mine! You, a tenant, leave walls alone, leave ceiling alone. I know old history, and I am telling you, leave it alone too. But, Mr. Dombrowski... Why are miscatonic people seeking always trouble, looking always into things? Better you to think of the future. Best is done. <coughs> Never should have rent this room. Never to students. Sorry, Walter. Uh, listen, uh, let's grab a cup of joe at the student union. On me. Mr. Dombrowski eyed us both with suspicion after that. I still don't know if he really understood the history of the house, but whatever he knew, he wouldn't tell. God bids us not to speak lightly of such things. It bonded me and Gilman, in a way, being the only two students living in the house. In that house... Did Gilman find his way into the space above his room? Not by cutting a hole through the ceiling. Hmm. That must have been disturbing. Gilman, the house, it was all disturbing. I remember one evening I went up to ask for help with a calculus problem. Hey, Gilman, will you help me review for my midterm? This modified Leibniz notation's got me all... Quiet! Do you hear that? Hear what? Listen. You mean your clock? Oh, that accursed thing. I swear it's mocking me. It's like the thunder of artillery. Gilman, steady man. Listen, don't you hear it? You destroyed it. Oh, not the clock. That incessant cacophony. That superstitious idiot downstairs. That scurrying within the walls. I'd swear they're following me. Gilman, you're worrying me. Do you hear that creaking? I swear, there's someone walking around. It's just an old house. Oh, there's something underneath it. I can't quite pick it out, but I feel it's there. A sound within the sound. Gilman, you've got to let it go. Look, you've barely begun to prepare for your exams. Anderson told me you haven't shown up for your study group for a couple of weeks. I can't concentrate. I can barely think. There's something hovering over me, biding its time before it descends to engulf me completely. Gilman, listen, maybe you should take a break. I think all the reading you've been doing about Josiah Mason has had an unhealthy influence on you. put all these bad ideas in your head and the added stress on your mathematical work, it's going to all turn upside down. Something. <laughs> 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 <la
Shut up! Shut up! You've got to be quiet! Ah! Gilman! The poor man. And you yourself never heard these noises that so troubled your friend? Oh, I heard lots of noises, Father. There were undoubtedly rats in the walls, and Joe Mazurowitz did pray out loud night after night, but I never heard them the way Gilman did. His ears were sensitive to a preternatural degree. And another blessing and another curse. I suspected maybe he was ill, some kind of brain fever, but whether the fever brought on the dreams or the dreams brought on the fever, I, I couldn't say. Dreams can be a battlefield where the holy and unholy wage war for the soul. He first told me about them in early February. Adam and Eve on a raft, wrecked. Ah, Gilman, I thought I'd find you here. Uh, mind if I join you? Go ahead. What do you have? I'm just coffee and donuts. Hey, hon, what'll it be? I'll have the hash, please, and some toast. We have a gambler in the house, and burn me a shingle. And a cup of coffee, if you don't mind. Coming right up. You want a refill, hon? You downed that job up pretty quick. Yes, thank you. Big test coming up? You boys pulling all nighter or something? <laughs> something like that. Well, I'll keep it hot. Are you all right, Gilman? Another sleepless night? No, I slept. In fact... I had the most fantastical dream. So did I. I dreamed that girl from the library was locked in a tower made of Eskimo pies. I, I, I tried to scale the walls to get to her, but, but the bricks kept melting, and when I finally did get to the top, somehow she was my Aunt Helen. Hmm. What about yours? What did you dream? I was in my room at my desk when the walls began to fold in on themselves. The space turned itself inside out, and I was suddenly plunging through a limitless abyss of inexplicably colored twilight and bafflingly disordered sound. I was in a hiatus of space and time with material and gravitational properties I can't explain or even relate to my own entity. Gee. I could clearly sense that I was moving through this domain, but I, I wasn't walking or climbing or flying or swimming or falling or crawling or wriggling. It was a very strange sensation. And I wanted to keep moving forward, but neither could I have stopped myself. I was being pulled or pushed. I tried to look around to find the source of this compulsion and realized I could not see my own body except out of the corner of my eye. Whenever I tried to look at myself, some odd disarrangement of perspective cut off any clear view of my arms or legs or torso. I know I had some kind of definite physical presence, but it was somehow marvelously transmuted and projected obliquely to my own faculties. But I could see many other beings, for the abyss was by no means vacant. It was crowded with angled masses of alien-hued substance. Some of them seemed like architecture, and others of them seemed to be organic, living things, but they all had structure. I felt certain that the structure was there, even if I couldn't directly perceive it. Some of the organic ones tickled at my memory and seemed to correspond with something in the back of my mind. Although I could never tell what it was, it was a very eerie sensation of presque vous. Presque vous? Yes, you know, that feeling that you almost know what something is. It's on the tip of your tongue and you know that you should know it, but it just barely eludes you. I had no sense of scale to relate to, but I confronted things that seemed monumentally huge and others that must have been all but microscopic. The inorganic masses were like clusters of cubes and planes, or 
like prisms that split not light, but reality itself into a labyrinthine spectrum beyond comprehension. Other things seemed organic, I guess, because they had a certain roundness, like groups of bubbles, and because they moved. They seethed and roiled, roused in a kind of snake-like animation that sometimes seemed utterly random and sometimes showed signs of purpose and motivation. That sounds amazing. No. It was horrible. Because not only could I see all these things, but they could see me. And I was surrounded by a shrieking, roaring, menacing confusion that I felt at any moment might rise to some unbearable degree of intensity and crush me or rip me to pieces. Sweeping's up with a shingle. Here you go, hun. Hash and toast. Oh, thanks. Can I throw you a life preserver, hun? What? A donut. You want another? No. I'm not hungry anymore. It was the first of the dreams that began to consume him. For a dream cometh through a multitude of cares, the Bible tells us. It's only natural that your friend dreamed of the same worries that troubled him by day. Perhaps. In some ways, the dream seemed to clear his mind, at least as far as his mathematical studies went. He was getting a, an intuitive knack for solving Riemannian equations and astonished Professor Upham by his comprehension of higher dimensional problems. Riemannian equations... I've never heard of that. It's based on the work of Bernhard Riemann, a German mathematician. In his youth, he studied theology and was going to become a pastor, but he amazed his teachers with his mathematical abilities and his parents sent him to study in Berlin. He discovered an entirely new kind of geometry that was named after him. A new kind of geometry? Yes, a non-Euclidean geometry of curved spaces and higher dimensions. It's the foundation on which Einstein has built his theories. <laughs> My goodness. Gilman seemed to have an innate understanding of it all, and one afternoon in class he took some of these ideas rather far. Mathematicians are the scouts of science, always on the frontier of knowledge. Urbain Leverrier, in 1846, had nothing to go on but mathematical prediction that there should be a planet beyond Uranus. He did his calculations, and when he told them where to point the telescope, they found Neptune right where he said it would be. If pure mathematics can lead to the discovery of a new planet, why not to a new dimension, or even a new universe? Exactly. There's no reason. Oh, <laughs> Mr. Gilman. It was a rhetorical question, but no doubt you have something to add. Yes, Professor Upham. You've clearly demonstrated the existence and the nature of the fourth dimension. Each dimension is a cross-section of the next higher one. A point is a cross-section of a line. A line is a cross-section of a plane. A plane is a cross-section of a cube. To get to any next higher dimension, you simply have to move in a new direction, one not contained within the dimension you currently inhabit. In three-dimensional space, the new direction we move in is the one we perceive as time. Time is the fourth dimension. Yes, full marks, but I but, must... But, but Kaluza and Klein have shown that there is a fifth dimension and that motion in that dimension is what accounts for the force of electromagnetism. The Kaluza-Klein equations are interesting, Mr. Gilman, and while they may be mathematically true, they're a bit beyond the scope of what Oh, no, 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 but if we follow those equations out, Professor, we find that there must be even more dimensions. In fact, I believe there to be ten. <laughs> ten dimensions? That's quite a claim. It's just a matter of perception. To understand how you can observe extra dimensions, consider the following two laws. Uh, here, look... 
The gravitational force between two massive bodies is g m1 m2 over r squared, where g is the gravitational constant, m1 and m2 are the masses of the two bodies, and r is the distance between them. And the electrostatic force between two charges is k sub e q1 q2 over r squared, where k sub e is Coulomb's constant, q1 and q2 are the charges, and r is the distance between them. Now, as you can see, both of these forces follow the inverse square law. The magnitude of the force is proportional to 1 over r squared, the inverse of the distance squared. But this relationship is predicated on three spatial dimensions. Do you see? Well, uh, I, because, I suppose... Because really, it's 1 over r to the d minus 1, where d is the number of dimensions. 3 minus 1 is 2, so for ordinary three-dimensional space, it comes out to r squared. But if there were more spatial dimensions, let's say 5, then it would be r to the 4th. If there were 9, it would be r to the 8th, and so on. Minkowski space and Maxwell's equations can be embedded in a Riemann curvature tensor. And when you solve that tensor for d, it comes out to 11, as you can see, which suggests there are 10 dimensions. Professor, this isn't going to be on the test, is it? Don't worry about that, Mr. Roberts. Because it looks to me like complete nonsense. Oh, really? Oh, it's theoretical mumbo-jumbo. You could never prove it actually exists. It's all just a figment of Gilman's loony imagination. Well, Mr. Gilman... What do you say to Robertson's objection? Ten-dimensional space is something you might be able to think about, but could you ever experience it physically? I believe you could, sir. We could physically travel beyond the fourth dimension. And how would that be achieved, Gilman? By folding the dimension, sir. What? Imagine an ant walking on a newspaper spread out on a table. He walks across from one edge of the paper to the other and can go no further. He only perceives two dimensions. But if we here in the third dimension fold that paper over, the ant can suddenly find himself back where he started. From his point of view, it's like instantly transporting from one edge of space to the other. Just so, if a man possessed sufficient knowledge to fold three dimensions, he could step deliberately and instantly from the Earth to any other celestial body he chose. Such a step would require only two stages. First, a passage out of the three-dimensional domain we know, and second, a passage back to the three-dimensional domain at another point, perhaps one of infinite remoteness. And how could one hope to survive such a journey, Mr. Gilman? The journey itself would be harmless, sir, although one would need to choose his destination with care. Denizens of some planets might be able to live on certain others, even planets belonging to other galaxies. Do you understand? Perhaps. Of course, there must be vast numbers of mutually uninhabitable zones, even if they were mathematically juxtaposed. It's also possible that the inhabitants of a given dimensional realm could survive entry to unknown realms of additional dimensions, even ones outside the given space-time continuum, and that the converse would be likewise true. Other planets, ants and newspapers and other dimensions, this is all crazy talk. Not at all. Robertson, imagine you're the ant. You're in the third dimension all along. You just can't see it. We can travel to these other dimensions, Robertson, and survive because, in fact, we're already there. We just have to learn how to perceive it. I don't know if we're talking about mathematics anymore, Mr. Gilman. Well, there are other ways to see things, sir. Ancient civilizations may not have developed the Kaziah... I mean, the Toulouse equations, but they still perceived worlds beyond their own. There's a rich tradition of lore handed down to us from antiquity as magic. Our forebears had knowledge of the cosmos that may have been greater than our own. Would you give me a break? This is math class. <laughs> Shamans, alchemists, witches, they all perceived things outside of normal experience. They may not have gotten there by mathematics, but rather by rituals, by the contemplation of metaphor, by, by dreaming. If only you could see it. 
The Necronomicon tells Professor Oppum. Yes, I think we're drifting into Professor Wilmarth's territory here. All right, class. That's more than enough for today. Thank you, Mr. Gilman, for that very... Uh, interesting diversion. On Thursday, we'll be discussing Bragdon Chapter 9. Sharpen your pencils. You think you're so smart, Gilman. No, Robertson, it's just... Well, I think you're a spooky, apple-polishing bookworm. That crazy stuff of yours better not end up on the midterm. There was quite a bit of gossip about Gilman on campus. Some of our fellow students envied his brilliance, but most dismissed him as an eccentric or worse. He sounds troubled, like he needed help. Some faculty members felt the same thing. Finally, he was summoned to the offices of Dr. Bell, the Dean of Sciences. Hello, Gilman. Take a seat. Yes, Dr. Bell. Thank you, sir. Professor Armitage, Professor Upham, am I in some kind of trouble? Well, that's the question on everyone's mind, young man. Professor Upham here tells me uh, you delivered quite a lecture in his class the other day. I didn't mean to offend. You didn't give any offense, Gilman. I thought it was fascinating, but it was far beyond the scope of the curriculum. Professor Upham tells me you referenced the Necronomicon during this lecture? Yes, Professor Armitage. Well, I wasn't aware that you had visited the library's restricted section. That particular book is not supposed to be accessible to undergraduates. I didn't know. I just signed into the room. Yes, I checked. It seems you've been doing quite a bit of esoteric reading. The Book of Aban, von Unaussprechlichen Kolten. Those seemed like strange choices for a mathematics major. I find them interesting. Do you indeed? Is that wrong? It's not just the reading, Gilman. The word is you're stretched pretty tight. There have been incidents with other students. And Miss Brewster tells me you've missed several sessions of her psychology class and, and that she's caught you sleeping at your desk on more than one occasion. I'll put in more time, sir. <laughs> that's, that's not what I'm getting at. It, it seems you're putting in too much time as it is. Uh, look, Gilman, non-Euclidean calculus and quantum physics are hard enough to stretch any brain. When you mix them with folklore and the kind of extra reading you've been doing, well, it's really just something that... We're urging you to reduce your workload. There will be no penalty if you take advanced general psychology next semester. And you will not be admitted to the restricted section without checking with me personally. But professor, those books are vital to my studies. I believe I'm close to synthesizing differential geometry with Western hermetic traditions. I know. That's what concerns me. Mr. Gilman, it's our judgment that you need to take it easy. We've seen other promising students' careers fall apart from overexertion. We're only concerned for your welfare. And we'd also like you to pay a visit to Dr. Waldron at the campus infirmary. If you're having trouble sleeping, he can prescribe a sedative. Very well, sir. Is that all? For now, your diligence is commendable, Gilman, but for your own good, perhaps you ought not to study quite so hard. Did anyone else try to help him? A family? A pastor? He really didn't have anyone else. Well, me, I guess. Would he listen to you? I tried. I walked home with him after his meeting. It's so unfair. I'm so close to great results, and they try to stop me. I don't know. Maybe they've seen this kind of thing before, Gilman. <laughs> They're threatened by me. Armitage is jealous. You should go to Doc Waldron, Gilman. You look terrible. That old quack, he'll order me to stay in the infirmary right when... Do you see her? See who? Look. Down that alley. She's standing right there. 
I don't see anyone. That old woman. There, in the shadows under that door. It's... Her. Her who? From my dreams. I've seen her in a dream. I'm sure of it. You're imagining things. See that thing crawling at her feet? I don't know. I can't... I... Maybe there's something there. It's not a cat. But it's too big to be a... A rat? No, no, it, it's it's nothing. Come on. It's her. You need rest. Let's go. Elwood. It's her. Did you see this woman? I don't really know, Father. Uh, maybe I did. Or maybe it was just Gilman's suggestion. You know Arkham. There's a lot of history in that part of town. I, I really don't know, but Gilman was as disturbed as I was. I, I wanted to help him, but sometimes he avoided me, and sometimes, to tell the truth, I avoided him. His intensity was hard to take, and, and something was hanging over him. One evening a few weeks later, when I came home from studying at the library, Joe Mazurowitz called me from his room at the foot of the stairs. You're there, college boy. Hello, Mr. Mazurowitz. Uh... How are you this evening? I pray to God for deliverance. There are dark days ahead. Okay. Well, uh, have a good night. You have crucifix? You pray? Oh, uh, uh, no, I'm... Uh... You must pray. The witch is here. I have seen Brown Jenkin. Brown Jenkin? The witch is familiar. It's called Brown Jenkin. It is in-house again. You will see it. Uh, Gilman mentioned something. Your friend is in great danger. May Eve is coming. The witch has returned. Brown Jenkin makes the way. They make plan. I pray to keep them from my door. Your friend, he does not pray. He sleeps in witch's room. He mugs God and all things holy. On May Eve, Volpurgis night, hell's door opens. Evil walks the earth, and all the slaves of Satan will gather for terrible doing. It's the witch's Sabbath. Everyone knows this. Well, now, I, I, I didn't... Oh, yes, you are from the Miskatonic. Science man in Tower of Ivy. You know nothing. But we here know. There will be bad doings. A child or, or two will disappear. You will see as we have seen many times. My grandmother, her grandmother, you will see. Well, I'll keep my eyes open. You will know this brown Jenkin when you see it. He's like rat creature, long hair with sharp tooth and beard face. But this thing have hands like a man's and face like a man with eyes that are black and see many things. You will hear in walls his messenger between witch and devil. It knows secrets of darkness and speaks every language. Yes, you will hear too. It laugh to mock men and God. Pray. It does not come to your home. I will pray for you. That's... Thank you. It will whisper when it comes. When you sleep, it crawl into bed and it drink your blood. For the witch is the devil's baptism. She walk again here, this house. Only the crucifix and strength of God keeps her away. You pray. I'll do that. Stay away from your friend. For him, it's too late. Have you heard of it? 
this Brown Jenkin? I have. It's been reported in local folklore for centuries. Do you believe he exists, Father? I believe the devil can assume many shapes. Gilman was sure he saw Brown Jenkin in his room. I heard him arguing about it with our landlord. I'm telling you, it's the rats. The pieces of tin that you nail everywhere are completely useless. The things just gnaw through somewhere else. No, it's not so many rats in Olive City. It's no rat so big. It's you trying to get into my wall. Along the floorboards? That's absurd. I'll prove it to you. I'll spread flour out along the floor and you'll see the footprints. No spreading of flour is enough mess already. Gentlemen, please. See here, they chewed through this dictionary I used to block the hole. I suppose you think I chewed up my own dictionary? No more damaging of room, Mr. Gimlin. You are terrible tenant. What What was that all about? It was here last night, Elwood. It actually entered the room. You mean the rat thing? Brown Jenkin? I was just dozing off when I noticed a faint glowing light. It seemed to shimmer all around the room and showed in a kind of violet mist the convergence of various angled planes. You mean these crazy angled walls? Well, the walls were part of it, yes, but there were other planes that intersected, extrapolated out into the room here. Just here they formed an angle, and the little horror appeared to pop out of it, just like a rat coming out of a hole. I was frozen. It pattered toward me with this gloating look of expectancy. What did you do? Well, I couldn't do anything. But I didn't have to. Just before it got close enough to touch me, the violet light faded and it vanished. You mean you woke up? This was no dream. Look. Is that a... A fragment of bone, yes. From a human finger, I'll wager. Where did it come from? He dropped it. Brown Jenkin. I believe it's meant as a message. Oh, Gilman... I feel certain that he's actually spoken to me. In dreams that I cannot now recall. I know I've gone through much more than I can remember. That I've experienced things beyond the waking world. Brown Jenkin and the old woman, they're trying to communicate with me. No, Gilman. It was just a rat dragging some piece of detritus from its lair. You, you have a brain fever, and when it's gone, you'll be free of these fantasies. No, I'm, I'm sure I've spoken to them, Elwood, and they want me to join them somehow. They want me to go with them and meet someone, something else. There are secrets they have yet to reveal. Amazing secrets. You understand this is the work of Satan, tempting him. Luring him. I don't know. He was so convinced these experiences were real. Of course. That's how it works. It, it was all just dreams. I didn't think there was any real danger. And then one afternoon, he wanted to show me some new evidence. Elwood, get your coat. I need your help. What is it? Come with me and I'll show you. Hurry before it gets dark. What, are we taking the stairs up to your room again? No, we're taking a boat to an island in the river. Don't the Lambda Fies use this island for hazing during Hell Week? I don't know. Probably. They are idiots. It has a terrible reputation. Yes. And has done for centuries. It's mentioned in Keziah Mason's trial transcripts. She conducted rituals there. Secret meetings. That's why people avoid it. Except us. And idiots. To Port Elwood. There's a clear spot along the shore just there. Whatever possessed you to come out here in the first place, Gilman? Visions. 
In my dream, last night, I found myself on a rocky hillside, bathed in intense, diffused green light. I was surrounded by a swirling vapor. Suddenly, I saw two shapes laboriously crawling toward me out of the mist. It was the old woman and her familiar. Brown Jenkin? The woman stared at me and crossed her arms, Elwood, in a way that I swear wasn't entirely human. It was as if her elbows and wrists could turn backwards upon themselves, and the little creature raised one of its hands and pointed, not at me, but past me, to something I couldn't see. I found myself moving by an impulse I couldn't control, along a course determined by the angle of the old woman's arms. And before I had shuffled three steps, I plunged through a twilight abyss and woke up in my room. Gilman. I felt strange afterwards. I found myself staring at a certain vacant spot on the floor of my room. I, I don't know why. I simply couldn't tear my eyes away from it. I knew it meant something, but I didn't know what. I tried to go to class, Elwood. I really tried, but it was no use. As I was walking toward campus, I found myself being pulled to the southeast and staring at the ground as I walked along. I plodded down Garrison Street, and by the time I reached the bridge over the Miskatonic, I was in a cold sweat. You can see the bridge from here, can't you? Yes. Do you see that iron railing? Yes, of course. I clutched at that railing, Elwood, trying to steady myself, and found myself gazing upstream to this island. And that's when I saw her. Her? Do you mean... She had her back to me, standing near the shore, but I could tell it was her. The same old woman I've seen in my dreams. I was wide awake, Elwood, in broad daylight. She was moving about and seemed to be gathering something up. Keziah. She suddenly stopped and stood erect and slowly began to turn toward me. I panicked, Elwood. She was far away, but I didn't want her to see me. I was afraid something terrible would happen if she saw me. I ran as fast as I could to make it back to the house. Oh, Gilman. I saw her here, Elwood, on this island. When I calmed down, I knew I had to come and get a closer look. I hired this boat and rowed out here early this afternoon. Let me show you what I found. It's just up ahead. My son, you and your friend are on a dangerous path. These are not forces to be meddled with. I know that. Now... What did you see on the island? There were rows of standing stones, like rough-hewn pillars of granite... They were covered with moss, and there was an unmistakable aura of tremendous age surrounding them. There was no sign that any human being had disturbed them in living memory. They stood in a kind of low clearing, encircled by the remains of some kind of shallow ditch. The tallest of them stood over eight feet in height. There was nothing natural about them, Father. They were quarried from the ground and arranged in some kind of geometrical pattern. This stone circle is older even than Keziah Mason, Elwood. It predates Arkham itself. There's no telling who erected it. Human, it's but, amazing. But Keziah studied it, I'm certain. I think it forms a map that points the way to dimensions beyond the ones we know. Here, take this end of the measuring tape and help me plot it out. We measured and mapped it. Gilman drew a number of sketches. It was a feet of ancient engineering father. Saint Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. I didn't think we were doing anything wrong. I thought I was helping him. Oh, my son. These standing stones form a part of Keziah's magic, but I need to do further research to put it together. Armitage has put me on the blacklist for the library's restricted section. 
But you could get in. Oh, Gilman, I don't know. No one would think twice about it. I, I need access to books that are held nowhere else. What books do you need? There's one in particular. The Necronomicon. What is it? The original was written by an Arab called Abdul al-Hazred in Damascus in the 8th century. It's been suppressed over the ages, and our library has one of the only English copies that exist anywhere. It's a book of magical lore and philosophy, and it's instrumental in my work. Why? It combines occult studies with mathematics. Western mathematics was founded by the Babylonians, and Al-Hazred was the heir to that tradition. He understood how they intersect. How they intersect? Yes, Elwood. And that's the key. Mathematical knowledge is unlike any other kind. The occult, religion, science, history, they're all subject to interpretation and revision. But mathematical truth is objective and timeless. The theorems of Pythagoras and Algorithmi mean exactly the same thing to everyone today as they meant 2,000 years ago. And they will mean the same thing to everyone 2,000 years from now. Their truths are intrinsic and immutable. That's because they follow a made-up set of logical rules. Uh, Mathematics is a system invented by the human mind, Gilman. It's no more real than your dreams. Now you're beginning to understand. Dreams, like mathematics, are beyond real. They exist in the spaces between. But both reveal fundamental truths about ourselves and the universe. You know that. I'm on the verge of understanding and revealing amazing hidden mathematical structures of reality itself. My dreams, the house... This stone circle, Keziah, they're tied together by a pattern. I can't break out of it until I can understand it. That book, the Necronomicon, is the key. Will you get it? Well? I... He was on to something, Father. I could see for myself that there was some kind of pattern here. And I wanted to understand it, too. Then there was... Another incident a couple of nights later. Come on, you! Open up in there! What's the matter, Mr. Dombrowski? Your friend. I bring poison for rats. He no open door. He's go out? Oh, I don't think so. He told me earlier he felt feverish and was going to bed early. I think he go out. He's probably just asleep. Gilman? It's me, Elwood! Are you in there? More trouble with this guy? He's Gilman. No answer door. Hello, Mr. Desrochers. Did you see Gilman go out? No. I heard him walking around in there a while ago. Are you sure? Of course I'm sure. I am in the room right below. I heard the floorboards creaking, and I heard the sounds of clicking shoes on wood. When was that? Maybe 45 minutes. Then it was quiet. And you didn't see him leave? No. I was by front door. He'd no go out. Maybe he needs a doctor. We should go in. I have key. Gilman, we're coming in. Gilman? Turn on the light. He's not here. It's what I'm telling you. Ah, he put flour on floor. I tell him no flour. Stop. Look at the footprints. Bare feet walking to the middle of the room, but not walking back to bed. The footprints... But how can that be? It's like he vanished halfway across the floor. That's weird. His bed has been slept in, and and look, his shoes are right there by the side of the bed. And there's his clothes. Where could he go, barefoot and wearing only his nightclothes? This door was locked from inside. Did he go out the window? He's a strange kid, but that would be dangerous. Mr. Desrochers, was there anything else? Uh, I heard muttering voices. Voices? There was somebody else in here? I don't know. Maybe it was Gilman talking to himself. He is an oddball. He's terrible, tenant. Look at messy leaves. I- I'm going to go out and look for him. Mr. Dombrowski, would you mind leaving the door unlocked? No. Here. Take key for room. 
give back tomorrow. Uh, yes, of, of course. Here, red poison. You give him. Thank you. Now sleepwalking. Some days I think there's something wrong with this house. I, I searched everywhere, the neighborhood, all the way over to campus. No trace of him. By the time I got back, it was near four in the morning. I went back up to Gilman's room and unlocked the door. He was there. Gilman, where have you been? Elwood. Elwood, how did you... I've been looking for you for hours. Where, where did you go? I was dreaming, Elwood. But before, you weren't here. Dombrowski had rat poison for you. We, we were in this room looking for you, and you were gone. Where did you go? I was in the space between, Elwood. With her and her familiar. She now appears to me so distinctly. Her eyes are unmistakable. The expression on her face is hideous. Some kind of exultation. She spoke to me, but I... I can't remember exactly what she said. She wants me to go with her, somewhere specific. To do something. Do what? Something terrible. She appears out of thin air near the corner there, where the downward slant meets the inward slant. She gestures to me, beckoning. Brown Jenkin, too, seems a little nearer each time he appears. He has these fangs. They glisten in that violet mist. And he commands me to swear an oath, to sign something. What does he want you to sign? The book. The book of the black man of the witch cult. I must sign his book in my own blood and go with them all to the throne of Azathoth at the center of ultimate chaos. Azathoth. Oh my god. Gilman. I must take a new secret name and join them. She is called Nahab. I feel the pull so strongly. Is that where you went? I feel so drawn to it, Elwood. You have to fight it, Gilman. It's a dream. It's more than that. Yes. I can see it more clearly now. I'm surrounded by a violet twilight moving through dimensions beyond number. I'm being watched, followed. I feel it's them, but they are different. She is a pulsing mass of iridescent spheres swarming and blinking in and out of existence. And her familiar is a small polyhedron of kaleidoscopic color and rapidly shifting surface angles. What? Now a shift, folding as vast converging planes of a slippery-looking substance loom above and below me, and there's a flash of delirium and a blaze of unknown alien light. I'm on a high-railed terrace above a boundless jungle of outlandish, incredible peaks, with domes, minarets, and numberless forms, some of stone and some of metal, glittering in the blistering glare of a polychromatic sky. Above me, I see three stupendous disks of flame, each of a different hue, and at a different height above a distant curving horizon of low mountains. The pavement below my feet is of a veined, polished stone, and the rail surrounding the terrace is delicate and fantastically wrought with little figures of grotesque design and exquisite workmanship. They represent some ridged, barrel-shaped object with thin, horizontal arms radiating spoke-like from a central ring and with protrusions at each end like the arms of a starfish. The tiles beneath my feet are so hot, Elwood, I must keep moving. I walk along the balustrade and look down at the endless Cyclopean city 2,000 feet below. If only you could hear the sounds welling up from the narrow streets beneath me. What mystifying denizens must reside there. The sight makes me dizzy, and 
I clutch at the balustrade. My right hand falls on one of the projecting figures, but my grip is too much for the exotic delicacy of the metalwork, and the spiky figure snaps off in my hand. I hear something behind me, and I look back across the terrace. Five figures approach me. They're coming for me, Elwood. They want me to go with them. Who are the figures? Kazaya? Is it a brown chicken? Yes. They're beckoning to me. Her face has a twisted smile, and the horrible creature points to the three other figures with them. Who are they? I don't know, Elwood. I just barely glimpsed them. They were living entities about eight feet high, shaped precisely like the spiky images on the balustrade, and propelling themselves by a spider-like wriggling of their lower set of starfish arms. The sight of them shocked me awake and brought me back to this room. That's when you found me. Are you saying you actually physically went to this dream place? Yes. No. Gilman, it's not possible. Yes, Elwood. Look here. When I jolted awake a few moments ago, I discovered this thing in the bed. Look at it. What do you see? Oh, my God. Is that... It can't be. It is. No detail is missing. The ridged, barrel-shaped center... The thin, radiating arms, the knobs at each end, and the flat, slightly outward-curving starfish arms spreading from those knobs. That's what I saw, Elwood. That is the figure which, in my dream, I broke off that fantastic balustrade and was still clutching in my hand. This must have been some kind of trick. He might have made it himself. He could have... No, Father, Gilman was completely sincere. Maybe he found it sleepwalking. There are other explanations. The next day, we took the strange figure to the campus museum on College Street. Dr. Brinkman, the curator, he couldn't identify it and sent us to Professor Ellery in the chem lab. He was baffled by it, said it was some kind of alloy he'd never seen before. He said we should show it to Professor Nathaniel Ward in the archaeology department. Here it is. Can you make anything of it, Professor? We heard that you know a lot about, uh... Uh... Yes? Strange things. Strange things, eh? Hmm. I think it's some kind of metal, but... Uh, Where did you say you found it? A trash can near City Hall. Really? I find that hard to believe. We... Do you recognize it, Professor? I might. Who did you say sent you here? Uh, Professor Ellery. He couldn't even determine what it was made from, let alone what it is. Ellery. Hmm. No. I don't suppose a chemist would be able to determine either. Why not? You know what it is, don't you? I wouldn't go that far. I need to know. Please tell me. I'll admit it bears some resemblance to certain mythical creatures I've seen, though this version is disturbingly detailed. Why don't you leave it with me? I'll look into it further. In the meantime, I seriously urge you to steer clear of those trash cans. You might not like what you find in there. Professor Ward kept it, Father, but he never did give us any more information on the subject. He gave the piece back to Dr. Brinkman, who put it on exhibit at the museum. It's there now, an actual relic from a dream universe. My son, this object doesn't mean... There was other evidence, Father. 
I didn't want to mention it in front of the landlord or Desrochers, but remember the footprints in the flower on the floor of Gilman's room? Yes, what about them? There were two other sets besides Gilman's bare feet. One made by an old-fashioned pair of woman's shoes, and another that looked like it was made by tiny human hands. Lord, protect us. I was convinced that Gilman's experiences were somehow real, so... I agreed to help him gain access to the Necronomicon. These are grave transgressions, my son, with grave consequences. I never should have done it. I am so sorry, Father. It was the beginning of the end. How did you get Gilman in to see it? I used my graduate student pass to enter the rare book room and lingered in the stacks until just before closing time. While the clerk was distracted helping another student... I smuggled the book out and a bundle of other volumes I had with me. Another commandment broken. I didn't steal it. We, we, we just wanted to borrow it, Father, to read it. We had no intention of keeping it. I hurried back to the house with it and ran into Joe Mazurowitz downstairs. College boy, there you go. Uh, hello, Mr. Mazurowitz. I, I can't talk right now. Very busy studying. You go to your friend? Yes, that's right. We're, we're working. Better you to leave. This boy is doomed. I have seen the witch light in his room. For him now there is no escape. The witch light? Yes, everyone knows of this. Outside of house last night I see light from his window. Light is... Violet light. It's true, Elwood. I saw it too. Oh, dear Roche, I, I didn't see you there. There was a faint glowing light around the cracks of Gilman's door. I put my eye to the keyhole so to see what it might be. Well, aren't you a good neighbor? There have been strange goings on. I hear mysterious footsteps from his room, muttering voices. I need to know if I'm in danger here. We are all in danger. Volpurgis night is near. There will be blood. Your friend has stood great misery. This witch come back to claim him. And Brown Jenkins. Well, I'm trying to help him. To help give him this crucifix. Blessed by Father Ivanichki. His last hope. That's not... You take his last hope for us all. I'll give it to him. Does he seem drunk to you? He's frightened, man. Gilman should get out of the house for a while. At least stay out of that room until after May Eve. I'll tell him. Now, if you'll... Elwood! Something's coming. I don't know what. But I can feel it. You fellows need to be careful. Okay. Thanks. Uh, good night. Gilman, it's me. Let me in. Did you get it? Yes, it's here. The Necronomicon. Well done. Let me see. Listen, Gilman, I ran into Mazurowitz downstairs and he... Religious nut job? Yeah, well, he... Elwood, he fa- this is fiendishly difficult reading. I need to concentrate. Look here. The name Azathoth. And these diagrams. This is it. Now we'll see. He gave you a crucifix. I- I'll just put it here on the dresser. This is the lore that Keziah herself read over 200 years ago. I know you see her in your dreams, Gilman, but how could she still be alive? Time is just a dimension, Elwood. If one can travel through dimensions at will, one might preserve one's life and age indefinitely, never suffering organic metabolism or deterioration. One might even pass through time itself and emerge at some remote period of the Earth's history as young as before. I see. Nyalahotep! That's the name that I've heard in dreams. Look, Elwood, it's all here. We read and discussed the book late into the night, Father. 
It all seemed to confirm Gilman's ideas that his mathematical studies were linked with ancient magic and folklore. Of course it did. The hidden witch cults often guarded and handed down secrets from forgotten ancient times. Keziah might have actually mastered the art of passing through dimensional gates. In historic times, all attempts at crossing forbidden gaps seem complicated by strange and terrible alliances with beings and messengers from outside. The immemorial figure of the emissary of hidden and terrible powers. The black man of the witch cult and the Nyarlathotep of your Necronomicon. Satan has a thousand names. I see that now. I wish I had stopped him. This is dangerous territory. Speak of the devil, and he will appear. And he did, Father. I must have fallen asleep while Gilman was still reading, because I awoke on the couch. Ah! Gilman, are you all right? Hellwood, it's happening. Oh my God, you're bleeding. Your pants are covered in mud. Have you been sleepwalking again? I can't control it. Bloody footprints starting in the middle of the floor. They came again. More vividly than ever. What happened? I felt her clutching at my arm. She pulled me from the bed, and suddenly I found myself in a crude, windowless space with rough beams and planks rising to a peak just above my head, and with a slanting floor underfoot. I think I was in the hidden space above this room. On the left, the floor fell abruptly away, leaving a black triangular gulf out of which Brown Jenkin emerged. There was a table with books and magical implements, and beyond it stood a figure I never saw before. A tall, lean man of dead black coloration. The black man? I could feel his power, Elwood. He had expressionless black eyes. He he didn't speak, but only pointed to an enormous book which lay open on the table while Keziah thrust a huge gray quill into my right hand. I knew what they wanted, but was paralyzed with fear. And then Brown Jenkin ran up my clothing and down my arm, finally biting me sharply in the wrist. Blood spurted from the wound. Gilman, my God! I grew dizzy, and the room spun around me. The next thing I knew, I was in a dark, muddy, unfamiliar alleyway. The smell was atrocious. Ahead of me was the black man, who pointed silently to an open doorway, while Brown Jenkin writhed in the mud near his feet. The old woman grabbed me and dragged me through this doorway, pulling me up crooked stairs to another door. She opened it and went inside. She... I... What happened? I heard a cry, Elwood... A hideous, strangled cry. And then she returned, bearing a small, senseless form which she thrust into my hands. So frightened, his little face. What? What what do you mean? Whose little face, Gilman? I staggered down the stairs and back into the alleyway. The black man was waiting for me. He clutched me by the throat. I can still feel it. Gilman, whose face? It was... It was... Oh my God, what's that? Now what's happening? It was... What is it? Mr. Desrochers, what's going on? I don't know. Something bad has happened. Gilman, stay here. Mr. Dabrowski, what's going on? It's Anastasia Waleshko's boy. He's kidnapped. Kidnapped? Oh, no. Vladislas, he's only two years old. Take him from his bed. Where? Where do they live? Honest gangway. That's just a few blocks over. Oh, my God. I tell you this would happen. In March, we see Brown Jenkins. Is Volpurgis night coming? Boy is to be sacrificed. Has anyone called the police? Police not coming. Police are for miskatonic people. For us, his only prayer. She asked her neighbor for to help protect child, but she's afraid. He's with my wife now. Is every year children taken? 
police are never coming. Mr. Dombrowski, did anyone see the kidnapper? Pete Stawaski sees three strangers, people in gangway, just past midnight. Leader is big Negro man. What? I saw those three from my window. There was noise from Gilman's room that woke me up, and I just happened to glance outside. Who did you see? I only saw them from behind as they were walking away. But there was a huge black fellow, and a young white man, and an old woman. Yes, Peter's after drinking, but he sees same thing. And I couldn't quite make it out. But I'd swear there was also some kind of little animal with them. What does it all mean, Father? Gilman's horrifying dreams were becoming real around us. Had he actually traveled through other dimensions? Was he being manipulated by forces beyond his control? Or, or was he summoning them to our world? Doesn't the Bible tell us that God speaks to men in their dreams? Yes, my son. Jacob and Solomon and Daniel and Job and Joseph all had dreams in which God appeared to them. And if God can influence our dreams, couldn't there be other supernatural beings who could do so as well? God demands we abjure witchcraft and magic for a reason, my son. It's to protect us from the Prince of Darkness, the Deceiver. If only I'd stopped him when I had the chance. Stopped him from what, my son? Walpurgis night had finally arrived. The witch's Sabbath that Joe Mazurowitz feared so deeply. I insisted that Gilman stay the night in my room, and I promised I'd stay awake all night to keep watch over him. We heard Mr. Mazurowitz praying from downstairs, and I even made Gilman put on the silver crucifix that Joe had provided. We sat up together and tried to distract ourselves with talk of other things, but the constant murmur from down the stairs was oddly hypnotic. Gilman listened as he nodded, and I could tell his preternaturally sharpened hearing strained for some subtle sound beyond the noises in the ancient house. I realized what he was listening for. It was the hellish chant of the celebrants in the ancient stone circle on the Forbidden Island. How did he know they would be there? Had he signed the black man's book after all? I could almost swear I heard them myself, Father. Maybe I was dreaming too. Over miles of river and hill and alley they came. The fires must be lit and the worshippers must be starting in. And now he saw that there was a fresh rat hole in the wall. There appeared the fanged, bearded little face. The screaming twilight abysses flashed before him, and he felt himself helpless in the formless grasp of the churning void of violet light. In a second he was again in the cramped space with the slanting floor. On the table lay a small white figure, an infant boy, unclothed and unconscious while on the other side stood the monstrous old woman with a knife in her right hand and a strange metal bowl in her left. She was intoning some ritual in a language which Gilman could not understand, like something from the Necronomicon. As the scene grew clear, she bent forward to extend the empty bowl across the table, and Gilman was unable to stop himself from reaching out and taking it. The crone motioned to him to hold the bowl in a certain position while she raised the huge knife above her tiny victim as high as her right hand could reach. At the same moment, the form of Brown Jenkins scrambled up over the brink of the triangular black gulf. Yeah, 
As they chanted together the black ritual, Gilman felt a gnawing abhorrence shoot through his mental and emotional paralysis, and the metal ball shook in his grasp. A second later, the downward motion of the knife broke the spell completely, and he dropped the bowl while his hand darted out to stop the monstrous deed. He wrenched the knife from the old woman's claws, sending it clattering over the brink of the narrow triangular gulf. In an instant, her murderous claws locked tightly around his own throat. He felt the chain of the silver crucifix grinding into his neck as she continued her choking. He reached feebly into his shirt and drew out the metal symbol, snapping the chain and pulling it free. At the sight of it, the witch seemed struck with panic, and her grip relaxed long enough to give Gilman a chance to break it. Before she saw what he was doing, he had the chain of the crucifix twisted about her neck, and a moment later he had tightened it enough to cut off her breath. During her last struggle, he felt something bite at his ankle and saw that Brown Jenkin had come to her aid. With one savage kick, he sent the creature over the edge of the gulf. Whether he had killed the ancient crone, he did not know. And then he saw on the table a sight which nearly snapped the last thread of his reason. His efforts had been in vain. While he had fought Keziah, Brown Jenkin had attacked the little boy. And the bowl now stood full beside the small, lifeless body. In his dream delirium, Gilman heard the hellish chant of the Sabbat coming from an infinite distance and knew the black man must be there. Confused memories mixed themselves with his mathematics, and he believed his subconscious mind held the angles which he needed to guide him back to the normal world, alone and unaided for the first time. Just before he made the plunge, the violet light went out and left him in utter blackness. Did he find his way back? We found him on the floor of his room before dawn. I failed him, father. I had fallen asleep and never saw him leave. On his throat were the marks of murderous hands, and on his legs there were rat bites. The crucifix was missing. He was alive? In a way, but he was unresponsive with open, staring eyes. We brought him down to my room and sent for Dr. Waldron. The doctor told us that both of Gilman's eardrums were ruptured, as if by the impact of some stupendous sound. Gilman, whose acute hearing had so long tormented him, was now stone deaf. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endureth forever. I sat with him, and after a few hours, he regained consciousness at times and, and whispered to me what he had experienced. Heaven help him. No, Father, there was no help for him. The final horror came that very night. What is happening? What is it? Gilman? What is screaming? Look, his blood on blankets. Send for a doctor. Hurry. It's spreading. My God, what's wrong with him? Agnes, send for a doctor. Look at blood. God have mercy. Gilman. Gilman. God, it's Brown Jenkins. Stop it. Kill it. It's too late. It ran into that rat hole. This house is cursed. By the time the doctor came, my friend was dead, Father. Brown Jenkin? You tell me, Father. I don't know what to think anymore. There had been virtually a tunnel through his body. Something had eaten his heart out. I've tried so hard to understand. It was so much more than a dream, but it can't be real, can it? I feel I don't know what reality is anymore. I know there are dimensions we can't hope to understand. Please, help me, Father. I don't have the answers, my son. 
not the ones you seek. There may be multiple dimensions, I don't know. And maybe one can travel from one to another and back again. Maybe your clever friend could indeed pass from world to world, defy time itself, and maybe he persists even now in some fantastic outer sphere. But this I can tell you with certainty. The path to knowledge only goes one way, and there is no turning back. What you have known, you cannot unknow. That's why the church has worked so hard to protect the world from the books you and your friend were so proud to read. That's why holy men from the beginning of time have hunted down witches and executed them. It's too late for you. There's nothing to be done now. My God, Father, I came to you for understanding, for comfort. What are you telling me? Is there no hope? Do you mean to say that your God will send me to hell? My God doesn't send people to hell, Mr. Elwood. It's like your clever friend Gilman said. You're already there. It's just that now you can see it. You've been listening to H.P. Lovecraft's The Dreams in the Witch House. Brought to you by our sponsor, Bubble Pep. It's the Nerve Quencher. Drink Bubble Pep, let us pour you some. The L is for lithium, yum, yum. Until next week, this is Erskine Blackwell reminding you to never go anywhere alone. If it looks bad, don't look. And save the last bullet for yourself. The Dreams in the Witch House was adapted for radio and produced by Sean Branny and Andrew Lehman. Original music by Troy Sterling Neese. The Dark Adventure Ensemble featured Sean Branny, Dan Conroy, Mike Dallager, Chad Pfeiffer, Elaine Cashin, Andrew Lehman, Barry Lynch, Jacob Lyle, David Paveo, Josh Temke, and Time Winters. Tune in next week for The Phantoms of Kalak Mool, a new Digby Dolman story. Dark Adventure Radio Theater is a production of the HPLHS Broadcasting Group, a subsidiary of HPLHS Incorporated, copyright 1931, plus 83.